Proper authority. Proper authority. That's become a huge issue in 21st century America. Uh, just think about it. Numerous executive orders issued by recent presidents have been declared invalid, right, because they exceeded constitutional authority. During the pandemic, what do we see happen over and over? We had governments that were chastised by judges or county leaders or governors for issuing rules over which they had no authority to issue. All of these kinds of things and a whole lot more have led to serious and seriously ugly fights over boundaries and the use of authority. Uh, a lady recently wrote me with a great summary. Listen to this. She said, Wayne, I am so disturbed by current affairs. What a bunch of brats we have become. Uh, we were discussing this the other day in our church staff, and at one point in our conversation, I said this. I looked at the pastors, and I said, we have become a nation of sixth-grade boys. Now, as a good parent, think about it. You've spent, when you have a sixth grader, you have spent a decade explaining why, right? Good parent, you haven't merely given orders and instruction. You've explained why, so that when the child grows up, this son of yours will be able to discern right and wrong without you being around. Suddenly, though, about sixth grade, this boy transforms, not into a reasonable adult yet, but into the craftiest shyster lawyer on earth. Every time you try to explain why, he picks apart every single part of your argument. What used to be three-minute little discussions become three-hour scenes out of a, a John Grisham courtroom novel, right? And according to him, here's the key thing, you never have proper authority. That's what I told our staff. Can you relate? If you have ever experienced this phenomenon, it basically has to do with insecurity and self-righteous mixing together into a terrible amalgamation that Mark Twain used to call cussedness. If you've ever experienced this, raise your hand. Raise your hand. You better raise your hand because the mirror will tell you. Yeah, um, me too. And, and again, mainly in the mirror for me. That, that is our 21st century society. We have become a crowd of bratty little sixth grade boys, but of course... This is nothing new, right? Jesus faced the same insecurity, the same self-righteousness in first century Judea. Think about Jesus in Judea in the first century. Jesus is the only one who actually has the authority to do everything he thinks is best. He is the only one who could unilaterally act, wouldn't this be amazing, without any unintended negative consequences. He could rule by fiat, the way modern people try to do, and none of his decisions would ever lack the proper authority. Unlike the Romans, unlike the Sanhedrin, unlike all the mere human authorities, Jesus could legitimately, think about this, eliminate all opposition. He could squash or exasperate the world's minions um, the same way that a, uh, an insecure and frustrated parent will, uh, will bring the emotional hammer down on that sixth grade boy. But Jesus doesn't. During his first advent, Jesus chooses to act scripturally. He chooses to be humble and winsome instead. Even as he exercises his power, Jesus takes the fickle changes of the crowd into account. And you know what he does? He deeply loves even those who question his authority. He sacrifices even for the fools who hate him. And here's, here's what's so important about that. In doing so, Jesus teaches us how to recognize and use and respond to true authority. It may be the thing we most need in 21st century America. Jesus teaches us how to recognize and use and respond to true authority. Let me show you. Open your Bible, Mark chapter 11. Mark is the second book in your New Testament. Turn to Mark chapter 11. Let's, uh, let's read verse 1 through 11. 
When they, Jesus and his disciples, approached Jerusalem at Bethphage and Bethany, near the Mount of Olives, he sent two of his disciples and told them, go into the village ahead of you. No, we don't know which one it is. Uh, As soon as you enter it, you will find a colt tied there on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it. If anyone says to you, why are you doing this? Say, the Lord needs it, and we'll send it back here right away. So they went, found a colt outside in the street, tied by a door. They untied it, and some of those standing there said to them, what are you doing untying the colt? They answered, just as Jesus said, so they let them go. They brought the donkey to Jesus and threw their clothes on it. They didn't become naked, boys and girls. The clothes here means the outer cloak. Uh, you wore inner clothing and then you wore an outer cloak of the time, still done in Bedouin societies today. Um, threw their clothes on it and he sat on it. Many people spread their clothes on the road. Others spread leafy branches cut from the fields. Matthew tells us those were palm branches. Those who went ahead and those who followed shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. A quote from Psalm 118. Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. Hosanna in the highest heaven. He, Jesus, went into Jerusalem and into the temple. Uh, That doesn't mean into the Holy of Holies. It means just on the Temple Mount. After looking around at everything, since it was already late, they'd walked about 20 miles already that day, he went out to Bethany with the twelve. Jesus shows authority in this triumphal entry. That's the headline, by the way, in our notes, uh, which you have hopefully downloaded if you're online uh, or you have here in your in your hands, and you came inside, you were given a bulletin, you'll see there Jesus shows authority in this episode that we call the triumphal entry. This is a narrative primer on how to recognize true authority. In a world where, where proper authority is continuously argued all the time, how can we recognize true leadership? This passage tells us there are three things to seek. First, true authority commands respect. Commands, not demands. Think about it. When you have to force somebody to obey, that's sure proof that you lack authority. Jesus does not demand respect. He commands it. That's why they recognize him as king. By the way, this spreading of the outer garments in front of somebody on the road, that is, that is connected directly to kingly authority. That has been an Israeli practice since before Yehu became the king of the northern Israelis hundreds of years before. Look, look up here, 2 Kings, um, Kings chapter 9. Jehu has just been inside talking with a guy who is uh, God's prophet. Jehu comes back outside to these men. <clears throat> he, God's prophet, talked to me about this and that and said, this is what the Lord says, I anoint you king over Israel. Each man quickly took his garment, put it under Jehu on the bare steps. They blew the ram's horn and proclaimed, Jehu is king. This is a purposeful response by the people. Those who prepared, those who joined in Jesus' procession are doing the same thing. They're proclaiming him as king. These these earlier men in Samaria, they saw in Jehu the elimination of the horrible reign of their current king, Ahab, and his wicked wife, Jezebel. That's why they're so excited about proclaiming him king. In the same way, the Palm Sunday crowd sees Jesus as the eliminator of oppressive overlords that work against God. Jesus is king. Look at verse 3. Jesus says, the Lord needs it. Now, whatever Aramaic term Jesus used, and we don't know, the Holy Spirit had Mark record that in the Greek as kyrios. Kyrios is really important. It means the authority. It's used of masters, owners, kings. Um, Years ago, there was a baseball player here, a guy named Juan Gonzalez, uh, two-time MVP, hit prodigious home runs. Of course, he was jacked up. But anyway, uh, there was one game where uh, pregame batting practice, 
And Gonzalez is just launching these moonshots. I mean, just amazing shots out of the park. <clears throat> so much so that a very rare thing happened. Both teams actually just stopped. They stopped all their pepper, all their playing they were doing, and everyone just watched him. There was a reporter who was interviewing one of Juan Gonzalez's teammates, and, and they were watching Juan hit these balls out of the park. And this reporter asked the teammate, he said, hey, by the way, he was interviewing about other stuff. He said, do you guys have a nickname for Gonzalez? What do you call him? And Juan Gonzalez's teammate said, I just call him sir. <laughs> That's awesome. In the Greek, that would be kurios. I just, I just call him kurios. How can we know whom to trust and whom to follow? Real leadership commands respect. Secondly, and this is incredibly important, true authority does not deviate from Scripture. The prophet Zechariah specifically described how the Messiah would enter Jerusalem. I want you to look here and see how Jesus exactly matched that. There's even more detail than this, but we don't have time to go into it. Uh, Zechariah had said Zion should rejoice and shout when Messiah comes. Um, what does Jesus do? He has not allowed this earlier in his ministry, but here he allows the people to shout and rejoice. Zechariah said this king will be righteous, which is an impossibility. There's none righteous, no, not one. But Jesus is the God-man, true, fully righteous. He is righteous. Zechariah said he would humbly ride in on the colt of a donkey, an animal that had never been ridden. What did Jesus ride in on? The colt of a donkey, the foal of a donkey that had never been ridden. And there's something else that I find especially interesting about this triumphal entry, and it's what Mark doesn't do. Mark doesn't relate this procession to a Roman general's triumph. In a few days, we're going to see, when we see Jesus in a few days, we're going to see him take the road to the cross. Mark is going to show that to us in exact terminology as, as, a, as a related idea of a Roman general's triumph. That's the, that's the idea he uses for his, <clears throat> excuse me, Roman audience to sh help us understand what Jesus is doing going to the cross. But this scene isn't depicted that way. In fact, this scene isn't depicted in a manner that relates to Romans or the Gentile world at all. This event is recorded in a way that emphasizes the fulfillment of Hebrew Scripture. Why? Because that's how one knows that an authority is worth following. When the leader lines up with God's word. The real triumph in the Gospel of Mark is Jesus' obedience to the cross. That's in chapter 15. Palm Sunday, though, is, is written to help us recognize true leadership. It lines up with God's word. Now, that doesn't mean the leader's perfect. There's none righteous. Every leader except Jesus will have flaws. This side of heaven, there will always be areas where a leader is still in process and doesn't currently line up with Scripture. For example, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 14 says, Christians are to be patient with everyone. Every, what word was it? Christians be patient with? Everyone. I definitely deviate from Scripture in that regard. And that's not right. Being impatient is not right. So the Holy Spirit and God's people are still working on me. In fact, some of you are very well used in this area because you test my patience regularly. Um, <clears throat> obviously, leaders like me should be followed with caution. You should, you should follow a leader like that correcting the areas where they're not biblical. That's not the same as the very sad leaders who will warp Scripture to excuse their, their deviations. 
They, they will see culture or personal preferences as factors that override the Bible. Sometimes they even will deny biblical passages about Jesus. The Apostle John calls this the spirit of the Antichrist. Leaders like this are false teachers. They're to be avoided altogether. Here's the pattern for real authority. The leader's practice lines up with prophecy. His or her praxis harmonizes with their philosophy. His or her walk matches God's talk. Obviously, the people understood this in Jerusalem that day. Look at this. This is so cool. Look at the organization of their chants. This is written in a chiasm for us. That's probably because it was recited back and forth by the ones who walked ahead of Jesus and the ones who walked behind. It It starts with that shout from Psalm 118, Hosanna. Hosanna is, uh, um, Psalm 118 uh, is one of the Hillel Psalms. It's for going up to Jerusalem. It's, um, it's a song about the greatness of God's release of Israel from Egypt. Hosanna is a, is a transliteration, a weird loose transliteration of a Hebrew word that was actually a loose transliteration of a Hebrew phrase. Uh, it's all kind of polyglot, but the idea is it's based on, everybody understood this, God come save now. That's what you're saying when you say Hosanna. God Come save now. Okay, so the first group, God save us now. The next cry probably came from the other side, from behind Jesus. Blessed is he who comes. That's another part of Psalm 118. And that mirrors the next shout. Blessed is the coming kingdom. Now, we noted in chapter 10 that Jesus is the fulfillment of the promises that Messiah would complete David's line. He would reign as king from Jerusalem. Hosanna, blessed is he who comes. Blessed is the coming kingdom. And the quatrain closes with Hosanna in the highest heaven. They probably said this many, many times over. I like to picture them closing with a rousing rendition of, we've got the spirit, yes we do, we've got the spirit, how about you? And they all together say, not until Pentecost. Anyway, sorry, seriously. How, How does one recognize true authority? The leader commands, not demands, respect. The the leader doesn't deviate from the Bible. And thirdly, true authority comes in the Lord's name. Notice that phrase, in the name of the Lord. Now, in the name of has a very particular meaning. It indicates that you're moving under the commission of and according to the character of the person whose name you're using. So imagine a, uh, a manager comes to your company and says, I come in the name of Bucky's. They seriously said, I, I trained at Bucky's. That's, that's where I learned my management chops. That's who I am. Okay, all right, for you non Texans, let me explain. Um, Bucky's is a famous convenience store, it's got a number of locations around the Lone Star State. Um, only in Texas would a gas station have more square footage than one of our large church buildings. Um, so, so this person comes in and says, I am a Bucky's kind of leader. I come in the name of Bucky's. What does that tell you? You know a lot of things about that person right there. Those of you who've been to Bucky's, what, what does that tell you? Right there, what? Customer service. Customer service is spot on. Yes, sir, can I help you? Yes, sir, can I help you? Can I help you? Can I help you? Yes, what else? What do we know? What, somebody else had their hand up. What? Yes. Cleanliness. Cleanliness. Those bathrooms are amazing. First of all, there's 6,000 stalls. Um, <laughs> And then it is so clean that if, you, if your kid drops the M&Ms there, you're like, go ahead. Just get down there, wallow. It's cleaner than home. Yeah, that's right. Um, what else? What else? What do you know about Bucky's? What else is, is, is true of Bucky's? What to die for? <laughs> Spuds to die for. Actually, probably five, five or six different places of, of hot food uh, and then about 16,000 kinds of drinks, right? And, uh, and then the thing you need to know before you go, more overpriced Texas junk than you can even imagine exists in the world. Okay, that's Bucky. So, 
So when this person comes in and he says, I come in the name of Bucky's, that's what he's going to bring to your store. That's what she's going to bring to your store. That is the ethic that that person has absorbed. In a similar way, a leader who comes in God's name has the ethic of Yahweh. They have absorbed the character of God's kingdom. Now, besides Jesus, we are only shown one other person that I can find in, in the very beginning, in the earliest first century Israel, we're only shown one other person who understands this. Our elder chairman, uh, Paul Hahn, loves this story. Paul loves this story. Here it is, Matthew chapter 8. Uh, Lord, the centurion replied, I'm not worthy to have you come under my roof. Here's the background. There's this centurion, really hard for us to understand, very powerful, powerful figure, um, is such a, a really nice guy that he has this servant who is sick, really sick. And so the centurion goes to Jesus to ask for help. Lord, the centurion replied, I'm not worried that I have you come under my roof, but just say the word and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority, having soldiers under my command. I say to this one, go, and he goes. To another, come, and he comes. To my servant, do this, and he does it. Hearing this, Jesus was amazed. And he said to those following him, truly, I tell you, I've not found anyone in Israel with so great a faith. Now, the context in Matthew is all about acting in the Lord's name. Look, chapter 7 of Matthew, just, just before what we just read. Jesus has just finished a story about people who don't really move in God's name, but pretend they do. These people on the mount where Jesus is teaching are astonished because he teaches with authority. He teaches like a person who knows the Father's ethic. And then right after that, we meet this Gentile centurion who gets it. He understands what it means to move in the name of a leader. Look at Paul Hahn's great comment. Paul says, he doesn't say what we expect. He doesn't declare, I'm a man with authority. He says, I'm a man under authority. The centurion certainly has authority, but he knows that it comes from being in line with the ones who gave him that power. Close quote. Awesome. That's what it means. The centurion trusts his leader, in this case, Jesus. And he grasps uh, alone. He grasps that Jesus is operating in the Father's name. Jesus is moving according to Yahweh's ethic. That is what is meant by this cry, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And that's what we want to see in people we choose to follow. Amen? All right, now read verses 12 through 14. 12 through 14. The next day when they went out from Bethany, every night they go back to Bethany. Um, they're staying there. They have a number of friends there very significantly. Lazarus and Mary and Martha all live there. And, uh, and they go back to Jerusalem. The next day when they went out from Bethany, he was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree without leaves, he went to find out if there was anything on it. When he came to it, he found nothing but leaves, for it was not the season for figs. He said to it, may no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard it. Jesus shows authority with the unfruitful fig tree. I'll explain this story more in depth in a moment when we come back to it. But you need to know this. This shows his divine authority to judge. And the action here is direct reference to Jeremiah Chapter 8, verse 13. I'd like you to read with me. You join me on the underlined text, Jeremiah 8, 13. Um, I will certainly snatch them away, declares the Lord. There will be no grapes on the vine and no figs on the fig tree, and the leaf will wither, and what I have given them will pass away. Jesus is fully human. He gets hungry, and he's fully God. He relates to the judgment text in Jeremiah 8 because he is God. That Jeremiah passage, by the way, it's a judgment on, on Judah's leaders 
because they have rejected God. Do you see the obvious parallel that Jesus is drawing here? Just as Judah passed away, so all who reject Messiah, God the Son, Jesus, they will pass away. Israel's presented here with an opportunity to be and do as God intended. This is their Messiah, but they refused him, and they are going to suffer appropriate consequences. I read many comments on this from various Bible scholars. Uh, Theologian R.C. Sproul was a good one. He had this to say. He said, Jesus curses the fig tree as a miraculous prophetic sign of judgment on Israel's spiritual fruitlessness, which will climax in the rejection of the Messiah within the week. Speaking through the prophet Jeremiah, God compared Israel's unfaithfulness to a fig tree that bears no figs and... This is in Jeremiah 24. We don't have time to go there right now. To inedible figs that will be thrown away as garbage, close quote. It's true. Very good. Very succinct. However, this was my favorite comment I received that I read. This comes from Cindy Sharp on our pulpit team. Cindy said, Jesus is walking around Jerusalem showing his disciples who he really is. He's really big. He takes up a lot of space. So much space that when he talks to a fig tree, it listens. No one else is like that. Because of who he is, he can do what he does. Tangentially, says Cindy, if we pray in faith in accordance with his will in the name, then we too take up a lot of space. Close quote. Well said. And we're going to see the Lord filling up a lot of space next as Jesus shows his authority in cleansing the temple. Verse 15. Go to verse 15. They came to Jerusalem. And he went into the temple and began to throw out those buying and selling. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the chairs of those selling doves and would not permit anyone to carry goods through the temple. He was teaching them, is it not written, my house will be called a house of prayer for all nations. That's a quote from Isaiah 56. But, and he says here in Jeremiah 7, you have made it a den of thieves. The chief priests and scribes heard it and started looking for a way to kill him. For they were afraid of him because the whole crowd was astonished by his teaching. Whenever evening came, they would go out of the city. There are two big ideas about authority here. You'll find them listed on the right side of our notes. First, Messiah's authority exposes idolatry. Currency exchange. I mean, that's what's going on is currency exchange. That seems like a nice practice, right? I mean, it's no different from what we all do when we change currency for different activities as we travel. This is a basic rule of life. Each authority structure demands currency in a form they can control. There are huge crowds flocking to Jerusalem for Passover. They come from from thousands of different places, dozens of different currencies. The authorities who run the temple are just demanding that all money be changed into their special temple coin. And of course, they're making a nice little profit on each exchange. Think of it like this. When you travel, where do you get the best rates when you have to change money? Do you get it from a local bank or from that kiosk in the international airport? Where do you get the best rate? From the bank. Why? Because they have you captive in the airport. And if you need it, you got to get it then, right? That, that's, that's like what's happening here. There's a, there's a surcharge here that's taking more of your money at the Temple Mount because they've got you captive. You have to change it there. But, and this may shock you, I don't think that's what Jesus is mainly upset about. At least unfair rates are not what he talks about when he's cleansing the temple. Go back to that basic rule of life. Each authority demands currency in a form that they can control, right? And therein lies the problem. The chief priests and the law experts have serious control issues. They are acting as if they are in charge of God's worship, and it's idolatry. Here is Messiah, God incarnate, and they just carry on as if their plans are the most important thing. Can you imagine Jesus returning 
exactly as scriptures foretell. And, and I know this doesn't work actually biblically, but just stay with me here. He returns and he walks right into here and we just continue on. Hey, just have a seat. We just continue on as if our worship plan was more important than the very object of our worship. That would be absurd, right? And yet that's what we do. Just like these priests and Levites in Jerusalem, we can get so caught up in our human policies and procedures and practices that we don't respond to the Lord. So you know what he does? He overturns the tables of our lives to get our attention. This happens to churches. It happens to individuals. Sometimes God turns our lives upside down because he loves us enough to shake us out of idolatry, which is the sentiment behind this meme. Somebody sent me this. When people ask you, what would Jesus do? Remind them that flipping over tables and chasing people with a whip is within the realm of possibilities. That's what the Lord did for me. That's what he did for me when injury ended my athletic career. It hurt like mad to spend months and months and months lying there in traction with my neck immobilized. But I have never stopped thanking God for it. I have never stopped thanking God for loving me enough to force me to look at him instead of my idolatry. Now, you, you know this, I hope. Not every pain is a correction from God. The upsetting moments are just part of life here between the garden and heaven. But whenever your tables do get overturned, and they do fairly regularly, when your tables get overturned, I recommend this activity. Pray. Do this. Pray through the events leading up to your overturned, upsetting situation and, and investigate whether there might be some idolatry that God is exposing. Here's a few questions you can ask. Is there, is there corruption in my life? Am I, trying to con am I trying to control my currency? Am I blind to Jesus' work because I'm so caught up in my own business? If the answers are yes, then thank God for loving you enough to expose your idolatry. Second big idea in this temple cleanse, false authority <clears throat> is <clears throat> excuse me, jealous of Jesus' power. The power structure did not like their idolatry being exposed. They determined that they were going to keep control. Thank goodness we're never like that. Oh, but we are. Aren't we? I, I don't know. You, you're probably much healthier and holier than I, but uh, I find myself on occasion laughing because I realize in my wrestling with God that what I'm basically saying to Jesus is, who made you God? Right? <clears throat> Maybe you can relate. When we find ourselves like that, when we find ourselves afraid of Jesus' authority, uh, one of the ways you can tell this is if you're trying to diminish his rule in your life. When you're trying to diminish his rule in your life, here's something that can be very, very helpful. It's what Jesus is doing here. Make yourself look at who he really is. Martin McDonald of our pulpit team sent me this nifty reminder. Martin said, this passage presents a stark contrast between the earthly chief priest and Jesus, the true high priest. He is the ultimate authority since he is holy, merciful, and righteous in all matters. And then he says this, thinking about who he is. Remember, Cindy said he's big, fills the space. Martin says this, consider, as God, Jesus gave the Mosaic law. As Messiah, he fulfilled that law. As the Lion of Judah, he will judge, close quote. It is utterly ridiculous to stand in his way fighting against Jesus' authority because of petty jealousy. And you can, always, you can always tell false authorities because that is exactly what they do. False authorities always try to declaw the Lion of Judah. Remember, Mark's a Roman citizen, right? And it appears that this Roman citizen Mark is writing to a particularly Roman audience. And he points out the chilling reality that governing authorities in general do not put up with, 
and often will fight directly against any power that claims to be higher than they. That was true for the religious council in Jerusalem. And as Mark writes his gospel, this kind of persecution is about to become common for Jesus' followers in the empire. And we see it again and again and again through the centuries. False authority is always jealous of Jesus' power. That's why it persecutes his people. All right, close out the passage. Go to verse 20. Verse 20. Early in the morning, <clears throat> excuse me, as they were passing by, they saw the fig tree. Told you we'd come back to it. Withered from the roots up. Then Peter remembered and said to him, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed is withered. Jesus replied to them, have faith in God. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, be lifted up and thrown into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says will happen, it will be done for him. Therefore I tell you, everything you pray and ask for, believe that you have received it, and it will be yours. And whenever you stand praying, if you have anything against anyone, forgive him, so that your Father in heaven will also forgive you your wrongdoing. They came again to Jerusalem. As he was walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came and asked him, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority to do these things? Jesus said to them, I'll ask you one question, then answer me, and I'll tell you by what authority I do these things. Was John's baptism, he's talking about John the Baptist here, the one who testified to him and said, this is the Messiah. Was John's baptism from heaven or of human origin? Answer me. They discussed it among themselves. If we say from heaven, he'll say, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, oh, they were afraid of the crowd because everyone thought John was truly a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we don't know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Jesus shows authority through the withered fig trees. You'll see in your notes, I, I pluralized that. I made tree plural because Mark connected these two events on purpose. The fig tree and the Israeli leadership that it represents, they, they are each exposed as useless. There's a whole lot here for our edification. I know, but for today, I'm going to just stick with the big ideas. Okay, the first big idea, true authority operates trusting God only. Jesus says, trust God. Believe him boldly. Summer of 1986, I was in Edinburgh, uh, Scotland for a while. And, uh, and while I was there, I really was blessed to enjoy these wonderful conversations day after day with a bunch of Scots. One night, we were all uh, in a pub watching the news on the telebox. And, um, and this one Scot said this. My friends in Scotland right now, you, I think, will enjoy this. Um, he said, most people are fairly meek when they interact with Scots here in our own country. There are three exceptions. English are bold because they think they are superior. Aussies are bold because they don't give a flip about anything. And then he said, Americans are bold because they know that if you hurt them, President Reagan will nuke Scotland. <laughs> <clears throat> that is like the source of our boldness in prayer and in life. It's not that we're superior. We aren't brash just because we don't give a flip. We're courageous because we know the God who stands behind us. All God's people said... However, don't abuse this text. Again, our boldness is based on the size of our Lord, not ourselves. There are too many Christians that have been misguided about this passage. They are told that if they will just believe harder than by their effort, they will cause the impossible to occur. They're, they're tragically taught to act like pagans who control their fake deities by following the right formulae. I'm totally serious here. I have heard pastors say that what Jesus lays out in this passage is the perfect formula for getting all the wealth you want. No! No, that's paganism. That's heresy. That's, that's a genie that is certainly not God 
Zoom your heart in on verse 25. You see, this is what those false teachers can't handle. Verse 25, why is it there? They try to ignore it. Ask yourself, why is it there? This is not just a tacked on thought. It's essential. Why mention this reciprocal aspect of forgiveness in the middle of a speech about exercising our spiritual authority? Because we are flawed people. We continually need forgiveness. We are not God. True authority operates trusting God only, never self. Jesus wants his followers to know that the authority that is passed to us is rooted in God's greatness, not in anything having to do with flawed people like us. Real leadership trusts God only, and wise authority will not be baited. Once again, the Lord responds brilliantly to a trap that probably would have ensnared most of us. He just won't dance to their tune. He isn't rude, but he won't play their dumb games. This was a serious failing of mine in my early years in leadership. I felt it was up to me to correct all wrongs. I couldn't abide any wickedness going unexposed. The thought of an unfinished argument was absolutely maddening to me. There is a name for this. It's often called angry young man syndrome. It happens to females as well. The core idea, the core idea is an overdeveloped sense of personal responsibility that gets wed to self-righteousness. It makes that person easy to bait into fruitless arguments. And, and it also means usually that they will try to, to bait others into endless fights, especially arguments over words. You know, the Apostle Paul seems to struggle with this. We look at everything he tells us about his uh, education and temperament and actions. Paul seems to have been easily baited. Maybe that's why God had him be the one to write this. Second um, Timothy chapter 2, verse 14, charge them, the church, before God, not to fight about words. This is useless and leads to the ruin of those who listen. Earlier, we talked about the cussedness of the typical sixth grade boy, right? That's a pretty good picture of what many adults are like in our poor life leadership. Jesus, look at him. He avoids this trap that was set by Jerusalem's elders. But we just, we just jump in headfirst to unnecessary battles. Oh, no, I don't. I don't do that. Oh, really? Let me have the passcode to your social media accounts. Yeah. Let me just ask you. How wise are you in social media and in other confrontations? Wait, don't answer that. Don't answer that. Uh, answer that in a minute. I have three other questions first, okay? Let, let's, with the Holy Spirit's help, I want us to do a quick self-evaluation. Look in your notes. You've got four questions in your notes. Let's, let's, let's absorb the ethic of this passage this way. Question number one, answer this. When a bad surprise arises, which comes most immediately for me? Prayer, taking action, or panic? Just choose one, please. Uh, for example, you walk outside and your car is stolen. Panic? You take action? Or do you, or do you pray? Immediately. Um, another example would be that phone call that everyone hates that comes late at night always. I don't know why, but it's always late at night and a child or a grandchild is seriously hurt. What's your, what's your immediate reaction? Be honest. Let's work this through. Question number two. When people question my authority, my power, or my place, and this one, I think it would be wise for you to check all that apply, because a number of these can be true at the same time. What's, what is your response? I bow up, and I demand respect. R-E-S-P-E-C-T, find out. I, I bow up, I demand my respect. Number two, I fume privately. I don't let anyone see it, or so I think, but where I spit the grass dies. You know, um, I, I sometimes even plot revenge. Uh, thirdly, I work to shore up my political position. I start feeling myself attacked, and I go back, and boy, I get everybody together. I get my buddies. I, I make sure I write emails. I cover everything together. I smile publicly, but I make sure I'm protected, right? I reject any input because I'm too busy 
getting my, my backside covered. Fourth option, I, I humbly deflect the unfair charges. I'm sorry, that's not fair. I accept the fair ones, and I live in a way that commands respect. Um, a perfect example of this is you receive a bad review from a superior. In fact, you want to make it harder on yourself? Make it a review that's not completely fair. Okay, you get a review that's not positive and it's not completely fair, you don't think, what do you do? I'll, I'll just tell you for me, I, I tend to do the first one and the third one, I really do that one horribly, and then, and then thank the Lord, I do the fourth one. What about you? Question number three. When it's time to stand for something or someone, and there are times to stand up for something or someone that's being misused, being perverted, and just choose one this time, if you would. It'll be better for you to think this through this way. I stay quiet because that's just, that's the way of the world. I turn over tables and I take no prisoners until everyone agrees with my way. Right? And you have to say my like that. I made them go my way. And third option, I turn over tables. I do stand up. I say this is idolatry. This is wrong. But I act according to Scripture. Winsomely, humbly, lovingly, I love even those who are persecuting. Okay? Let me give you a difficult example here. Your daughter comes home with a reprimand. She is in trouble at school because she complained about a biological boy being in her bathroom. And she is in trouble. What, what, what do you do? Do you stay quiet? Well, that's just that's the way of the world. You turn over tables, take no prisoners, or burn it all down. Or do you turn over tables and act according to Scripture? Question the fourth. When someone tries to bait me or derail me in order to further their unbiblical agenda, just exactly what happened to Jesus here. And this one I think is good to check all that apply. When somebody's trying to bait me, I respond with something nasty about them or something worse their side has done. Right? Yeah, the, it, here's, here's the example. You, you go on, let's say the example here. You go on to social media and you post something completely sincerely. It, it, one of the rare times your, your motives aren't mixed. You're just, you're just being you as a believer in Christ. And you say, I am so blessed to be a believer in Jesus because it provides any whatever. I, I have freedom, you know, whatever you want to say. And underneath all these vitriolic, nasty, what, whoa. Oh, you hate people. You hate pineapples. Whatever it is. They're just going nuts right down underneath there. And I love pineapples, so that came to mind. Um, so that's what you get. Okay, when that happens, what do you do? You, you respond with something nasty about them. Well, that's, what about your side? Second option, you get easily distracted. I, I get off my purpose. I'm in God's redeemed community to do the Great Commission by the power of the Holy Spirit for the glory of God. And I, I get, oh, I get totally off of that. Third, I become a partisan and I ask my side to rally around me. Hey, troops, rally! Get the pitchforks. Um, and number four, I allow them the chance to discuss real issues. And if I'm refused, and by the way, you will almost always be refused, just, just as Jesus was. If I'm refused, then I politely withdraw. I don't cast pearls for swine. What do you do? All that apply. For me, it tends to be this one and this one. Um, what about you? Now, the reality is very few of us can honestly say that the best answer in each scenario is us, that when, that when a, a bad surprise arises, we immediately pray. That's our immediate response. We know God who's big. We know who the real power is. We know in whose name we move. We need to respond to him first and engage with him. Uh, very few of us, our first response, our, our main response when people question our authority is to humbly accept the fair charges, to humbly deflect the ones that aren't fair, and to live in a way that commands respect. When it's time to stand up for something, uh, not many of us turn over tables. We do stand up, but we also act completely biblically with love. 
And when somebody tries to bait us or derail us, to allow them the chance to discuss real issues and then if we refuse, politely withdraw, that's incredibly rare. So let's suppose that you, those are not all true of you. What can you do? You pray. <laughs> you pray. It's, it's not about you. It's about the size you're God anyway. Let's do it right now. Pray with me. Father, I pray for myself. I pray for my brothers and sisters that we will react in prayer. I pray that we will that we will humbly accept the charges of the people that come from us that, that, that are ways we need to change to live scripturally and healthily. And we'll live in ways that command respect. I pray that when we turn over tables, and there are times to do so, that we do so according to scripture. We do so with love. And Lord, I pray that we will be shining lights in a culture that desperately needs it. We'll be like, like Jesus. We will give people a chance to discuss real issues. And if they refuse, then we will politely withdraw. I beg all this in Jesus' name. Amen.